we, we, we picked up on this immediately that these are lessons. There's something you've got to learn here that, uh, that you don't give up. In fact, what you do, you look at a problem and you say, how can I make this an advantage? Hey guys, Will Roundtree here on the full-time CEO podcast, The Shit They Don't Tell You, where we talk to influential individuals, moguls, legends, entrepreneurs, entertainers, and all those cool individuals who I get to interview. Now, today we have a very special guest. And as I always say, all my guests are special, but today we're actually speaking to an icon. That's right. We're speaking to an icon in not only just the world of business, but you know, a lot of people who know me, they know I love sneakers. You know, when I was a kid, I remember I used to ask my mom, hey, can I get this pair of tennis shoes? And she was like, you're going to have to get a job if you want those expensive sneakers. And I was so at the age of 11, I actually started working as a golf caddy just so I can be able to go out there and afford some sneakers. And one of my very first pair of name brand sneakers was some Reebok pump ups. I, after I saw D Brown pump up his shoes in the slam dunk contest, I was like, I got to have those. And so ever since then, I've been a sneakerhead, fell in love with, with the shoe culture. And today we have an opportunity to, to, to interview an icon in the sneaker world, Mr. Joe Foster, who is the founder of Reebok. I mean, I'm truly excited. We're talking about a global brand. Mr. Joe Foster took this brand to over $4 billion in sales. So I would like to say he knows a little bit about a little bit. And so uh, I'm extremely excited. Uh, his story is, is, is definitely inspiring, just not only from where the company came from, but, but, but all of the, I'm not going to say challenges, but the obstacles that, that, that they were faced with in, 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 in such a competitive uh, you know, space. But more importantly, they became the number one global company in that space. And if you guys have not done so, I need you to go out and pick up his book. Uh, trust me, it's something that, that, that will definitely inspire you no matter what industry you're in. So I would like to welcome all of you guys, as I'm going to say, my good friend, because Joe and I are going to be good friends after this interview. <laughs> Mr. Joe Foster, how you doing, man? Well, well, what a wonderful introduction that is. I'm doing fine. Uh, we're really busy. And as you say, Shoemaker is a story which has done it. It's uh, it was just a story to begin with, but it's uh, it, it turned out to be quite a quite an epic in many ways. And you know, when you when you when you look on life uh, as you go through life, it seems pretty normal. This is what you do. Only when you reflect on it, and sometimes I keep asking, "How did we manage that? How wow. did that happen?" But wow. you know, we had to keep going an awful lot to make it happen. We just had to keep going. And uh, but looking back on it, yeah, it's fantastic. But thank you for the introduction, and it's. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. No, the pleasure is definitely all mine. I mean, I've been following you on social media, Joe. Uh, you know, you and your wife, Julie, has been uh, very uh, inspirational. And, and, just let, and, and, and it gives people a sense of like, man, it, it's possible for anybody, especially after they, after they read your story. But uh, I want to take it back, uh, Joe. And, and because, I, you know, nowadays, the, the, not only just the sneaker world, but the designer world is very popular. So there may be someone listening to this podcast and they want to know, how did you get into being one of the largest global brands in, in, in the community? So, you know, just the start of Reebok, uh, and, and I know it started uh, as a UK company, is that correct? 
That is correct, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and really, it's been a family involvement, if you will. I mean, we, we really go back to 1895. Wow. Uh, and that's the inspiration. My grandfather, he is credited with inventing the spike running shoe. And wow. he got his idea because his own grandfather used to repair cricket boots. Cricket boots is a pretty well uh, British and British Commonwealth sort of game. But uh, they had spikes in the bottom. And that's way, way back into the 1800s. Wow. And uh, my grandfather obviously got the idea that if he put spikes into a nice lightweight pair of shoes, because he was a member of a, a local athletic club, not a very good runner, <laughs> but he put spikes in the bottom of a pair of shoes, <laughs> right. and uh, he came a very unlikely second. And that started his business. Now, nobody really would have known about J.W. Foster and Sons, who were world famous in the uh, early 20th century, very famous. Uh, but nobody would have known if Reebok had not just got through, brought through into the big world of, uh, of sport. But really, he was quite a genius. He had world records in his shoes in the early 1900s, gold medals. And in fact, in, uh, in the 1920s, the roaring 20s, he, he supplied lots of athletes. And if you've heard of Chariots of Fire, the film Chariots yeah, absolutely. of Fire, yes. there were three athletes in there, and uh, that was Eric Little. Harold Abrahams and Lloyd Burley, they all won gold medals in Joe Foster, my grandfather's shoes. Wow. And so they actually won the gold medals and they were immortalized in that film. Unfortunately, my grandfather died in 1933, which was 18 months before I was born. Mm. But I was born on his birthday. Wow. The 18th of May. And of course, my grandmother insisted I had brought my name with me. So I'm called Joe, just as my grandfather was called Joe. Wow. And so we have two Joe. And I must have picked up some of his DNA somewhere because uh, I, I think it was something that sort of inspired me <clears throat> um, to go into the family business, which I did. So I, I got into the family business, J.W. Foster's, after college, when I was 17 years old. And uh, in those days, we had national service. Where we had to go away at 18 years old, and go and do national service. Correct. Which my brother and myself, we both did national service uh, at 18. <clears throat> Jeff was a little older than me, but he'd, he'd had a deferment. We came back from doing national service. Jeff had been in Germany. He'd seen Adidas, he'd seen Puma. And we come back to our family, which had been so famous, making athletic shoes, football boots, everything. But my father and uncle, who had inherited the company from my grandfather, they just didn't get on. They, in fact, they were feuding. Well, you, you've probably heard of Adidas and uh, uh, Adidasler and Rudy Dassler. They were Adidas and Puma. Well, they didn't get on either. Okay. But they had the common sense. I, th I think Rudy Dassler had the common sense to get out and set up his own company. Wow. The Foster Company didn't do that. They just kept fighting. And that doesn't do a company any good when you don't talk, when you don't work together. So Jeff and I coming back from doing national service, we saw this and we saw a failing company. And we're saying, come on, guys, what are you doing? And my father could say, look, when your uncle's gone and I'm gone, this is your company. And I said, look, Dad, number one, we don't want you to go. We don't think that that's in our thinking at all. But this company will be dead long before you are. 
They wouldn't listen. We couldn't make them do anything. Jeff and I, he ended up with one alternative. We had to leave the company and set up on our own, wow. which we did. We did in 1958, we left the company and we set our own little company six miles away from the Foster Company and we called it Mercury Sports Footwear. Mm. Wow, that's 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 <laughs> that's a wonderful story. It, and, and, it, and so there was competition with the family. Did, did it become competitive? Well, we 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 didn't really. We we wanted to be um, we wanted to be good boys. Okay. We didn't want to be competing directly. So uh, my brother, he he was a keen cyclist. So we went into cycle shoes to begin with, um, and we did quite nicely. Business was coming along. But okay. as we as we'd sort of well forecast that the foster family, the foster business, two month, two years after we had left, the foster business folded. Okay. My uncle died and my father just couldn't continue. So that meant we could move into athletics and into any other part of the uh, uh we'll say a sports business, which we did. Right. So that's where we moved, but also uh you know, we talk about problems you can have or things you, you know, you, we were young. I'm 25, my brother's 27. We're pretty naive. You know, what can go wrong? You just set up your own business. <laughs> right. yeah, what can go wrong? Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so I'm an accountant. He said, Look, guys, you're doing very nicely. You're making a bit of money. You better register that name. Mm. Uh, what do you mean? Well, Mercury. You know, you're making these mercury shoes and they're good. If somebody else starts making them, you're going to have problems. Problems with the, you know, that's your name. So you've got to register it. Oh, right. How do I do that? You know, we're shoemakers. You know, how do we do that? Well, you go and see this guy. So he gave me the name of somebody in the local city, Manchester. I went to Manchester and uh, told him what we wanted. He checked out the name and he said, well, I'm sorry, guys. He said, your name is already registered. Wow. Mercury is pre-registered with uh, Lotus and Delta. They were part of British Shoe Corporation. You know, something so big, like British Shoe Corporation. Right. Wow. And they said they would sell it to us for £1,000. Well, £1,000 is nothing much these days. Right. <laughs> nothing at all. But in those days... We'd set up our, our, our whole factory. Oh, it was a small factory, mind you, with second-hand machinery for £250. We'd done all that. £1,000 was out of sight. Right, right. Way out of sight. So he said, well, guys, uh, if, you, if, you, you know, if, you, if you can't uh, buy it, you're going to have to change your name. Okay. And it was a nice day in Manchester that day. It was a real nice day, and the window was open. And he pointed through his window, and he pointed to Kodak. And I'm saying, what's, what, what's with Kodak? They invented it. That's their name. They made it up. So they can register that easy. Oh. He said, but you got to change your name. Don't bring me one. Bring me 10 names. And, you know, when you think about it, you know, this is... Just a minute, but this is our business. We've got to be in love with this business. We want a name right. that we really love. And we like Mercury. We can't have it. He said, look, guys, you've got to test these on the register. And it's no good coming one at a time. Because one at a time, you could take up to 10 months or whatever just to find your name. 
Let's try 10 at once. Well, you, you go back and you sit around the table and you think, how do we get 10 names? And we're thinking, <laughs> right. Yeah. Cougar, Cougar, that's a good name. Falcon, that's another good name. Yeah. But let me tell you about it. I'm taking it back to 1943. Okay. I'm eight years old. And like COVID, we had World War II at that point. And we couldn't go places. You can't go on holidays. So they had local events. And, you know, I won a 60-yard race. I had an advantage. I had spike shoes on. And in those days, not many people could afford spike shoes. But I had spike shoes. I won the event. Great. Fantastic. And I go up to claim my prize. Right. What do I get? I get a dictionary. And I'm eight years old. I'm looking at the guys, the dictionary, where's the football? Come on, you know, can't play with a dictionary. <sighs> but I get a dictionary. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was a Webster's, which is an American dictionary. Okay. What on earth is an American dictionary doing in the UK during World War II? I don't know. Anyway, fast forward now to 1960, and I'm sitting with my, my dictionary was there next to me. And, you know, I like the letter R. And we're looking for names. So I open my dictionary and I open it up and I start thumbing through slowly. And it's not long before you get to R-E. And I see R-E-E-B-O-K. What's that? Reebok. 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 Sounds good. It's a small South African gazelle. Gazelle. Mm. We're a running company. Fast. Gazelle. Yeah. Fabulous. That fits very nicely, thank wow. you. Top of the list. <laughs> ah, and I take this along with the other nine names to the red, to the uh, patent agent who's checking this with the register and say, look, we have to be in love with this. This has got to, you know, we, if we don't in love with this, we'll, we'll certainly be successful. But right. here's 10 names. This is the one I want. It's got to be our passion. I said, okay, Joe. Uh, leave it with me. We did. We we sit there for a, probably a week waiting once he checks this out with the register. And he came back and said, look, of all the names you've given me, there is only one. Only one, but you can use it. And that is Reebok. There's oh, a couple wow. of little... <laughs> there were a couple of little things like uh, a shirt company, um, called Tootles, and they had the name Railbrook. And he said, but I'm their agent also, so we won't. <laughs> We're not going to worry about that. So right. just, one, yeah, just one caveat by the registrar, registrar. And he said, if anybody comes along and said, We're making shoes out of Reebok skin, you're not going to be able to stop them. Mm. However, 10 years later, because that put us into the B section. Okay. We didn't know there was a different section to the register. Put in the B section. Ten years later, the registrar came back and said, we've moved you to the A section. Oh, why? So now well, you can stop everyone from utilizing Everyone. That. That's Powerful. Right. Powerful. Yeah. Is that because now, Reebok, it's a shoe. Right. It's a sports shoe, and you own it. Wow. So we might be talking about something completely different if it would have been Mercury. Mm. <laughs> absolutely yes indeed <laughs> and, and so so that's the thing that i often tell a lot of entrepreneurs 
Joe, is that sometimes that that hurdle is what's needed for you to really find the gold, you know, and I think a lot of times, you know, someone could have had that issue and I'm like, man, well, what should I do? And I've seen people give up for something as simple as that. But for you to say, you know what, let me get creative. Let me use my my imagination. Let me postulate this, 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 this company and this brand. And you, you literally utilize the dictionary <laughs> to find the name for, for this for this global brand. And it became Reebok. And I think that that's so powerful and that people love that story. And so so you change the name, you get it registered, you move it to the A class. Then what happens from there? How did Reebok become Reebok? Well, you know, we, uh, as you say, the, big, the biggest problem you have, you don't recognize when you set something up. That you're going to face, face a lot of problems. You think, you know, we're going to do this. Okay, so what's the next problem? Well, our next problem is we're four years into our business, doing okay. okay. We're not big. We're not big, but we're doing okay. And a letter arrives from the lawyers of Adidas. Mm. And our silhouette, we had two stripes and a T-bar. And they said, this infringes the three stripes. Well, wow. we're sitting there for five minutes. We were like saying, oh, what do you do? Then, of course, well, Adidas know we're here. Adidas feel they need to tell us we're infringing something. Right. Wow. Let's pin that up on the wall. What do we do? Change the silhouette. Mm. Why not? And what Reebok is now, you see, is a vector, which is the arrow shape. Right. That was a change. So we had two things in four years. Change a name, change a silhouette. Wow. And we realize that problems are sent maybe sent to give you a better product I, I was about to say like you kept it simple joe like you didn't get up in arms and and it's interesting because i was actually having this discussion with my attorney not too long ago protecting your ip like yeah. even the importance of that because I, I would assume that that was even a lesson for you to see how important it is so now in the future if another brand comes along and they want to consider themselves something close to Reebok or use a silhouette uh, symbol similar to yours. Like it was also a lesson in that. Would you would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. We we, we picked up on this immediately that these are lessons. It's something you've got to learn here that uh, you, you don't give up. In fact, what you do, you look at a problem and you say, how can I make this an advantage? Mm. You know, we didn't think of changing our name. We didn't think of changing our silhouette. Something happened. We were pushed. We were, and that was, that was a problem. So those problems are there. And, you know, now, even today, it's a question. Forget a problem. How, how can we turn this to our advantage? Right. And more often than not, if you really think about it and work on it, you can do. You can turn things to your advantage. You can pick it up because usually a problem creates some sort of noise. And that, that you know, advertising is to do with noise. It's to do with people hearing things. Definitely. And so that helps you. So if you can turn that around and make it work, it worked for us. Wow. So you, you, you just gave people a million dollars worth of knowledge just in that one line that, that those problems can, can really, it, it forces you to be creative. It forces you to be great. And that's why a lot of times when I speak to extremely successful businessmen and entrepreneurs and businesswomen, 
they say sometimes hitting rock bottom was the best thing that happened to them because you have nowhere else to go but up. And it forces you to say, you know what? I'm tired of this situation. Let me just go be great. And then it's just about the consistency of, 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 of being creative, the consistency of being persistent. So, uh, no, I definitely love that. So let's, let's transition a little bit from there, Joe, and let's talk about Chicago and how that changed everything once you, you know, got into the shows over there and all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, we're doing quite nicely in the UK. Okay. We're expanding. Well, you know, the UK is a small business. And within the UK, athletics, because we were only in athletics. Okay. Uh, soccer, football, we call it over here. But soccer, Adidas has really made big inroads into that. And for us to get into that would cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking across the sea there and I'm looking to America. I knew in America, colleges, universities had coach. And coach was a god. Coach you know, you get on with it. And you can even go to college on a sports scholarship, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that's good. Why don't we try? Fosters, they've, they've been making shoes, hand-sewn shoes for Yale. There's a couple of guys, Bob Jane, Jack and Frank Ryan. They were head coaches at Yale and they were buying 200 pairs a month of Fosters hand-sewn deluxe shoes and selling them to the other universities. Okay. So I knew, I knew there was a good market over there. And I'm reading... I'm reading a sports magazine and the British government said, we want you to export and we want you to go to America. And we will, we will pay for a stand at the NSGA show in Chicago. And we'll pay your return airfare and also half of your hotel bills. Mm. Well, so you're not going to argue with that, huh? <laughs> like, but let's, let's, let's get on our way. This is, <laughs> right. <laughs> this is wonderful. Right. So with a friend of mine, uh, we made the journey. We went to Chicago, and uh, I did. I didn't sell any shoes. I a, a lot of people came up and said, uh, "Oh, like like your product is great. Where do we get this from?" And I'm saying, "Well, England." And this sort of saying is that New England? No, 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 no. not New England. It's uh, you know across the water, like right. in Europe. Right. Oh, is that near London? Yeah. London, you got it. And we realized, I realized at that time that what I needed was a distributor. I needed someone in the US. Could I afford to get to the United States? No, but I needed somebody in the United States who would import Reebok. This is 1968. Okay. Okay. When did I get that? When did I get that foothold? 1979. Mm. We're talking 11 years. Wow. Pushing, trying. But you know, when you're pushing a product, that's tough. But one, the good thing that happened is that running became something big in America during the 1970s. Okay. Starting late in the 60s, all the way through the 70s, running just became the biggest, really big. And from that, a magazine, you might have heard of Runner's World. Runner's World started off, Bob Anderson, he started Runner's World. Okay. And he started first as just an A4 piece of paper. By 1975, it was a full-color magazine that everybody who was running bought it. So you advertised in it. But it wasn't just that. He was such an influence in in the running uh, growth that he thought he could tell everybody the number one shoe to buy. Well, we have something like 350 million Americans. 
we are probably 10%, 35 by a million Americans are probably running by that. I will train into it. And maybe uh, since he could tell everybody we shoot buy, 10% of those, we'll say three and a half million would want to buy the number one shoe. Mm. Mm. And true. you asked Phil Knight about that because it was a <laughs> Nike shoe. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he was importing those from Japan. Okay. Now he'd been he'd doing nice trade and expanding. Nike expanding very nicely, doing great. But could he get the demand when Runners World said Nike are the number one shoe? How do you turn? How do you turn on that volume? And it, you know, we, he had no control on the factories. So by the time he managed to get the sort of production he needed, Bob Anderson at Runners World said, "No, no, no! It's another number one shoe this this year. I think it might have been New Balance, but whoever it was." They changed it. Wow. Ah, the retail trade, they were up in arms. No, you can't do this to us. We're just getting in a number one shoe. Now you change it. So shoes were coming in that you don't say nobody wanted, but all of a sudden was a new winner. Bob Anderson, he, he had to face the fact that that won't work anymore. So he changed it. He changed it to a star rating. Hmm. If you were five stars, you were top of the heap, and that could be four shoes. Maybe, you know, four, maybe five shoes. Could be five stars. I knew that trying to become number one was a lottery. was right. difficult. We never get, well, we could maybe, if we advertised tremendously, maybe we, we would get a number one. But I knew we could do a five-star shoe. I knew we could make a five-star shoe. If we were in the business, that's Correct. what we were there for. Correct. We knew what was required. We followed the business. We knew it. And we made a five-star shoe. And it's 1979. I'm back in Chicago in February. And February in Chicago is nothing like Las Vegas. It really is cold. <laughs> it's very cold. <laughs> really is cold. <laughs> right. And okay, running is big. Kmart come up to me and say, I want they want 20, 25,000 pairs. Oh, okay. You mean the retailer Kmart? Yes. Oh wow, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah, they're 25,000 pairs. Okay. And uh, I thought, well, that's okay. And I, our, our small factory, that would be six months for our small factory. But I knew if we were, if we were going to get a five-star shoe, and I knew we were a good chance now we're on a five-star shoe, I, I worked with Barter. And Barter, I had a friend there, and they said they, they'd help me with production. Great. Okay. But then came out and said, but we need a better price. Ah, I knew this also. This meant going to the Far East. This meant going to South Korea. Because that way we get the product less than half the price we could make it in the UK. Right. I already had an agent who we'd contacted because if these things happen, we, we needed, you know, we needed to get things in a row there, our ducks in a row so that we could work with it. So I knew that. Okay, 25,000 per year, yeah, we'll, we'll do that, fine. But then whilst I'm at the show, along came Paul Feynman. You might have heard of Paul Feynman. He ran the American business. And he did a really good job, really good job. But Paul Feynman came on. He was running Boston Camping. Boston Camping was a small wholesaler of camping goods, okay. tents, fishing lines, all that. And he, with his brother and his brother-in-law, they'd been running this for probably 10 years. And I could tell that he was a bit fed up of just going around the same business, doing the same business, going nowhere. And he said, Joe, you get a five-star shoe and I'm your man. I said, Paul, come and have a look at our 
Aztec. Aztec, this is our, this is our offering for five star shoe. And he said, look, John, I believe you, but until it gets five stars, really, I can't commit. Okay, this is in, this is in February. The uh, shoe edition doesn't have one as well, doesn't come out until August, the end of July. Um, in between that time, I go and see Carp came out and I go and see Paul, it's a nice operation there. And the problem with Kmart is that I go there, they do so much. There are 50 people, all buyers in a room, and I'm sent to the guy who saw me in Chicago, and I go to see him, he's one of 50 buyers. And uh, I'm thinking, I may have 25,000 pairs on order here, but it may be my first and last order. This is a big operation, right, too big right. for me, too big for me. If they don't sell enough of my product in that square footage that they give me, and it fits the financial uh, model, I'm probably yeah. dead. Yeah, and Paul, you're stuck with the cost. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Paul, I like Paul. Like me, he was easy to get on with. We could, we could talk. He was small, but he was hungry. He was hungry. He needed something. Right. So Paul came over. He came over to the UK, and uh, he wanted to see if Reebok, well, what was Reebok doing in the UK? And we took him to events. And all the events we took him to, the winner was wearing Reebok, as you would expect. Mm. Uh, yes, we, we knew which events to take him to. He probably also knew. <laughs> the setup. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and half the field were also wearing Reebok. So uh, he, he was content and happy. He didn't think much of our factory because our factory was a small factory. But, you know, I told him we wouldn't be using our factory. We'd have to be using uh, South Korea. We'd, you know, but we would be our designs and we would be actually doing the quality and everything. We would do everything. Okay. So we were the last week in July and I pick up the phone and phone Paul. Um, Paul, I said, Paul, Paul, can you go down to the local kiosk? Because they'll have runners world in now. It's just one week before the August and the August issue will be out now. Okay. An hour later he came back and he phoned me back as a job. It's got five stars. Great, I'm your man. But more than that, we'd also sent a spike and a racing shoe. The spike was called Inca. That got five stars. And Midas, that was our racing shoe. That wow. got five stars. So we had three five-star shoes. And that was the difference between us pushing for 10 years to get in there. All of wow. a sudden, we had a pull. We had a hook. And that pulled us into America. Wow. So it took 10 years to get that five-star. Man, and, and again, that goes back to that perseverance. And so you get the five star, Paul is in. And so then I read somewhere where eventually and I, it, it, you guys became an, an aerobic shoe. And mm -hmm. that's really what took you guys over that hump, because, you know, uh, I often say when you find a gaping hole in the marketplace, you can make millions. And in this right. case, billions. Right. <laughs> so you guys found that gaping hole. So what was it? That, that, that caught you guys' eye about tr transitioning and making it an, an aerobic shoe and, and how that became so popular? Well, we were doing very nice as a running company. Okay. Sales are coming out. But there's a guy down in uh, LA, um, and, and he, he was a tech rep, Angel Martinez. 
He was a tech rep. And he was going in as a tech rep does to show him the good things about Reebok shoes. This is what this is good. This is fantastic. And his wife, his wife is going to aerobic classes. And she's coming back and she's full of it with her friends. And Arnold said, What do you mean aerobics? What's that? What do you do? And she said, Well, we're actually exercising to music, and it's fabulous. And I said, Well, can I come down to the next uh, lesson, next class you go to? Yeah. So Arthur did, and he went there and he saw the instructor in a pair of sneakers. Half the class, they were also wearing sneakers, the same sneakers, and the other ones, they weren't wearing any footwear at all, right? He had a light bulb moment. This was a moment of genius. Mm. Why don't we make a special shoe, this for women, just for women, on a woman's last, just the women's sizes. We won't make it for men. Women's side, make it out of glove leather. Make it feel like a glove with a nice cushion. Wow. And specifically for, for women. He was on that red-eye plane up, up to Boston to see Paul Feynman. And he told Paul Feynman about this. And Paul is saying, whoa, slow down. Slow down, Arnold. We're a running company. <laughs> right. <laughs> what, what, what do we want? We're making dancing shoes. Why? <laughs> I tried his best. And Paul was more like, look, we, we can look at it. We can look at it. But, you know, let's, let's see what happens. But Arnold was impatient. He went round to the back door. We're not a big company at that point. Went round to the big door to see, back door, see Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was head of production. Okay. Okay. And he persuaded Steve to get him 200 pairs of these shoes. And he got them. Mm. And he got them and got them down to Los Angeles, gave them to the instructors and some of the leading, the, the girls who were really into it down there. That was it. End wow. of story. That was it. When you get Jane Fonda going out buying a pair, right, one of the buying movies. a pair, right. and using them in her videos. Well, the girls loved them so much. They just didn't go to the classes in them. They went to work in them. They went out in them. They just loved them so much. Right. One problem, one problem, it was made, they were made out of glove leather. Now, glove leather, you can just tear it apart, just like a piece of paper. Oh, wow. And so these shoes, after a month, falling apart. Now, I guess if we'd have been anywhere else but the USA, and at that point, Los Angeles, Hollywood, <laughs> we would have been dead. <laughs> As it happens, the girls loved them so much, they went right. out and bought more shoes. Wow. We cured the problem. We got okay. the right leather, and we eventually got this thing going. And then it just took off. We were a $9 million business at that time. Wow. Wow. And so after, we were $90 billion. That, that's, that's powerful, Joe. And then, uh, and then from there, you guys actually were able to get a product placement in the movie Aliens. I actually yeah. remember that scene. How? How yes. did that? How did that come about? Was that a part of utilizing that whole aerobic shoe? I believe it was. Uh, so Journey Weaver had on a pair of uh, Reeboks in, in in the movie. Did that help spike the sales? Well, a lot of things helped spike the sales at that point. And <laughs> one of the big things was we were making these shoes just for women. We became known as a women's company. Okay. You know, we were we were nicely known in the running community, but across the uh, whole sort of spectrum of sport or even 
uh, we'll say streetwear, we were only a small company. This made us into a women's company and everybody wanted it. Even the men wanted it, but they couldn't wow. get it. They couldn't get it because this was for women, simply for women. And I think that's what drove this business. Then, of course, like you say, Sigourney Weaver and uh, oh, many others, uh, the Civil Shepherd. Civil Shepherd turned up at the, uh, uh, the Emmy Awards in a pair of orange wow. high tops. <laughs> yeah, and it's all this and the men were saying why, why can't we buy these and so it was that that sort of feeling that everybody wanted a pair of Reebok right. and the women of course this was great they just claimed the company this was a, at that point a women's company and uh, I mean eventually when we got to uh, I think something like one or two billion then we were making a lot more shoes, moving into a lot more categories. And that's when we were into uh, basketball. And let's see, D, D Brown was pumping his using <laughs> the pump. I still remember yeah. that, right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, so, so if you go back to 1965, Joe, you're in Chicago, you're seeing all these other brands and, you know, you're seeing oh. Nike, Adidas and all of them, all of them being number one to fast forwarding to now you're the number one brand globally. Like, how did that, how did that feel to know that you, you stuck in there? You never gave up through the name change, through the, 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 uh, you know, logo infringement to, you know, just all of the different hurdles that you went through. How did it feel to become that number one global brand? Well, you know, it's incredible. I, I can probably feel more proud of that now than at the time when we were doing it, because you're, right. so, you're so much involved. This right. is so much, you know, you're picking up the next weapon, you're moving on, you, you're doing what comes next, because everything is moving so fast. Right. You don't have time to think, well, isn't this great? It is great, <laughs> <laughs> it's fabulous. And uh, you know, it, it got to the time um, when we were about four billion, and uh, I, I left America alone. They, they were doing so great right. <laughs> that uh, they didn't need me. I was doing the rest of the world. Okay. I, would put, I put on about another 30 distributors after bringing wow. Paul in and Paul did so good. I was, so I was going around the world about uh, three times a year, mm. um, arriving at whatever airport, um, being picked up by a limousine, <clears throat> going to the best hotels, dining at the best restaurants, <laughs> and I'm doing this. As well, we, we had uh, a pro-celebrity event in Monte Carlo, mm. <clears throat> and we were bringing all, a lot of A-listers in from Hollywood, okay. um, and a lot of the top tennis players. So this was a, 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 a big event. You know, we had Frank Sinatra, I've got a list here, John Forsyth, Linda Evans, Joan Collins, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Jane uh, Seymour, Chuck Norris, Robert De Niro, and Michael Kay, you know, a lot of A-listers were coming along and I was hosting this, which was good. But I, I, did, I did recognize the fact that <clears throat> this will not go on forever. <laughs> this is not something that I could go on forever. And, right. uh, and at the end of uh, 1989, I thought, okay, the business was now corporate. The business was big. We had lawyers, accountants, and a lot of people in between right. doing everything. And the challenge at that point, the challenge had gone because this was a corporate uh, machine. Yeah. And uh, for me, 
You know, I started off with my brother Jeff in uh, 1958, and unfortunately, unfortunately, Jeff didn't make it. Mm. He 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 died in 1960, just as we uh, in 1980, just just as we got into America. So he didn't see the explosion, right? And you know, that was a great shame that he didn't see that. I suppose really it probably made me double my efforts to make sure, you know, we're going to push, push, push. We're going to make it, really, absolutely. If we really get lucky, it will happen. Right. And, you know, and I think one of the things that, uh, that people probably take from the book, and that is that uh, you've got to have, you've got to sustain a pressure. You've got to keep going. Mm. And if you do, and if, if you see your luck, and this is where most of us have an opportunity, but probably don't see it. And probably don't take that that plunge at the time. It is to recognize something when it's coming past your opportunity and, and make something of it. And that's your luck. Because we were there at the right time. We were in America just as running became something big. And then we, we created aerobics. We made aerobics into something global. And, and that was, that, I mean, those are the opportunities. And you need a lot of people. Yeah. Joe Foster can't do this. Right. Joe Foster can only open a few doors. And then <laughs> taking taking the right people, and it's right. creating the right culture. Mm. You know, we were fortunate because we we're winning. We could develop a winning culture, right. and everybody joins in that. Everybody feels that. It's contagious. And that culture is it, contagious. People absolutely. are buying into the vision. Was that was there ever a point, Joe, where you were like, man, I don't know. Was there ever a point of doubt throughout that entire journey? Because that was, I mean, even talking about that 11-year run before you guys got that five-star shoe, was there ever a time of doubt? I don't think there was a time of doubt. There was always that, uh, well, you know, we're, we're not quite there yet. The, you know, we, we've got to keep trying. Why, why didn't this work? Why didn't right. that work? You know, I, I had at least six different attempts with different people to break into the American market. Wow. People come into me and they try and they try, we'll, we'll, we'll give this a try. At least six and it didn't work. So, yeah, you know, one can either say it's stupidity or it's just <laughs> down my bloody mind in this, whatever it is, it is, right. no, you know, we've got a mountain to climb and until we're at the top, we haven't won. Right. This race isn't over until we've won. Mm. And, and, and that's, that, that I think was an attitude. Maybe my grandfather had that. Right. I don't think my father had, but maybe my grandfather. Right. Jeff, you know, like my my uh, my uh, father and uncle, they fell out. Jeff and myself would say, "Well, again, you're two brothers in a factory in a business. Why? How did you manage not to uh, become enemies right. like the other people do?" And the good thing of that was is that my brother Jeff, he loved the factory. He loved to make shoes. And if you read my book, even in the first paragraph, you find out that I'm not a good shoemaker. <laughs> I'm, you I were hate the vision. Me. You were the vision. You were the personality of the brand, Joe. <laughs> probably that probably that was it. So and, and Jeff said, look, I look after the factory. You look right. after everything else. Mm. So everything else was mine. And right. I, I made a lot of mistakes. I know I did. And uh, right. they're in the book. All right. But, well, uh, the one way to look at the mistakes is now you found out what doesn't work. So yeah. now you just do the complete opposite of that. Right. Right. So it, it, it is following that. And, you know, the book is, uh, 
I didn't expect the book to be anything more than I had to put the story right. Mm. Google, Wikipedia, they were telling me how Reebok started. Oh, wow. They, they had a photograph there of Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. Who's that? Certainly wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> that inspired me to say, oh, I've got right. to put this straight. I've got to get the record straight. So I sat down and, and wrote uh, Shoemaker. Oh, and wow. it, it was only when it came out that people said, yeah, but there's so many lessons in there. There's so much in there. There's so much that people can take from it. Mm. And right now, it is. It is. Yeah, right now, Julie and myself, we're just traveling the world. In fact, we're, we're due in America. Well, we, we go backwards. We go to Chicago, and then we come back. And then we do in June, we do June, July, and August, we're doing 12 cities. They oh, wow. want us to do 12 cities uh, with our book. So, oh, wow. uh, so that's great. And uh, we've got a busy summer. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, I see. And, and, and I appreciate you writing a book because, like you say, it's not really a book about shoes. It's about inspiration. It's about the journey. It's about, you know, passion. And I think, well, not a, I think I know it, a lot of people will be able to take some lessons from here. And even just from this podcast uh, episode of just your will or never to quit, man, because I've seen people quit, Joe, because somebody told them no. I've seen people quit because somebody said, uh, I don't know about that. But you had so much faith, not not only just in the brand, but in yourself. And I think that's where it starts is that that personal development, having that mindset. And as I often say, when you change your thinking, that's when you'll become successful. And so uh, so as we're wrapping up, uh, Joe, I want to ask you, you know, so you guys have the aerobic shoe. When did you branch off into the other uh, sports? You know, we mentioned briefly basketball and, you know, you guys became, you know, uh, into tennis. Like where did where did the basketball crossover come into? Because I know at one point there was a huge explosion. I know you guys had Shaq. You guys had, you know, mm -hmm. D Brown, which actually made the shoe very popular. Like, how how did that transition come about? Well, you know, we we, we had a problem. We had a problem in that our, our company was growing so fast, but it was growing as a woman's company. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we were we were making sports shoes, but in order to become a real sports company, <clears throat> we had to get into other categories. Like we say, it was first of all we started with women. And that was a, a great marketing uh, ploy to do that. It was wonderful. <clears throat> then the men wanted to come in. Now we had to, we had to move into other sports. And the one thing that we learned with aerobics is that uh, we, we had discovered or we had sort of almost invented soft leather because a lot of people that would wear a tennis shoe and the tennis shoe was so hard it was almost worn out before yeah. you'd broken the shoe in. But now <clears throat> we recognize that with the soft leathers that we had, we could make tennis shoes that you could put on and they were all they were already comfortable. They were so comfortable. So <clears throat> we started off moving into tennis. And uh, I, I do remember that in America, we, we put an advert out there. I think it was Paul who did it or his agent who, who did it was saying, um, Reebok believe that these are the best tennis shoes you've ever worn. Mm. And if you don't think so, return them and we'll send you a, a case of uh, tennis balls. Right? <laughs> we'll send you that. Wow. And the, the strap line to that was Reebok puts its balls on the line. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. So uh, we realized we had to move into other 
and, and to, to become a full uh, sports company. Correct. And and that that that's what that's how it happened. We and we started by by, by using this soft leather. <clears throat> we could get into any sport by creating shoes with a nice soft leather upper. I mean, eventually, eventually, everybody now uses the same product. Yeah, yeah, because it made the, it, it made the basketball shoe lighter. Because yes. I can remember in my you know my very early teens, maybe even before I was a teenager, sneakers were heavy. And yes. so it made it, it made it hard to be agile. It made it hard to be, you know, vertical, but then with the softer leather. And I remember, I think one of the, maybe even before the pumps or maybe around there, you guys had like that honeycomb technology or something right. in one of yes. your shoes. Like, what was that about? Was that a part <clears throat> of just the soul or just something to make you guys innovative in that space? Well, I, I think that we all recognize that innovation keeps people, uh, happy with your product it's uh, if you just do the same year after year after year yeah, people true. will move over so you have to keep rolling the technologies and uh, so so we did so you you keep moving the technologies and uh, you know it's <clears throat> sports footwear is not high tech it's fairly low tech it's yeah. like uh, nike introduced uh, and so they used air uh, in uh, what, what they're doing yeah and uh, you know that that is something that uh, well, in fact, we, we know, I know working with a company, they're going to use magnets. Oh, so, wow. again, moving on, you know, two magnets oppose each other. So that's a good sort of spring in motion, you can say. So that's going to be interesting that, uh, that these new technologies will come along. And, uh, like, you know, the, uh, the materials also, because we've moved away from just simply rubber. Right. It is now... These are plastics, you know, they're different, uh, different substances. Yeah. And you, you pump a lot of air into it, and that makes it very light. Mm. So, you know, these, these are the things that you move on. Right. And uh, uh, the first, uh, in fact, the five-star shoes, they, they really became lightweight shoes. Mm. I, I do in fact, I had a bit of a story that um, when, <clears throat> when we were producing in those early days, Paul Feynman said, you've got to give us the weight of every shoe. And we said, well, between a size eights or a size 15s, there's a big difference. Well, make it a size nines because everybody was then publishing it. And I was in America at the time. And Paul said, um, have, you, have you got some scales? I said, no, we don't, we don't weigh our shoes. We, you know, we just make them. So he said, I've got some scales if you want. And he gave me a pair of scales. And I put these in my bag and took them back to the UK, and I opened my my bag and took these out. It was in a plastic bag, and there was all this white powder in the bottom. And I'm looking at this and thinking, "What is this white powder?" Because these were very sensitive scales. Right. I phoned Paul. I said, "Paul, these these scales you give me, where do you get them from?" Oh, he said, "My friend's a police officer down at the narcotics. They're taking these scales off these drug people <laughs> all the time." I said, Paul, I've just flown through customs and everything with this. Oh, oh man, Paul trying to get you jammed up, Joe. <laughs> Definitely. You know, there, are, there are millions of stories that uh, oh, I have. can only imagine. So I know you talked about moving into new categories, and I have two more questions here for you, Joe. And again, okay. I'm loving the dialogue. Uh, you talked about moving into new categories. Have you guys thought about moving into the category of, of this new age of influencers? 
So if you ever need someone to help with that, you know, I, I, I don't mind being a spokesman for Reebok. <laughs> <laughs> okay. you guys you guys <laughs> sponsoring us uh, uh us new wave of entrepreneurs and individuals but uh on a serious note joe if there's one thing that one lesson that you could take you know what's that one thing that you wish you had have known back then that you know now oh well you know we've we've gone from 1958 right now in 2022 and you think of all the technology right the technology that has changed this world <clears throat> and it's changing it fast. COVID has, COVID has pushed it along rapidly. You know, Zoom meetings like this, yeah. they, you know, they, they wouldn't have existed. You know, it was just a few sort of uh, maybe businesses would talk to each other, but now we all talk to each other. Yeah. You know, as you say, at the end of this, we're going to be friends. You're going to become a Reebok influencer. There we Absolutely. go. There we go. Why not? Hey, you know, there we go. Speak it into yeah. existence. So all this comes from technology. Right. And it's how to use that technology now mm. to get the best out of it. So, yeah, you know, we, uh, the Reebok deal has not gone through the, with, uh, with Adidas and uh, ABC. It, okay. it ends at the end of this month. Oh, That's wow. when it completes. It completes mm. then. And I hope we'll be talking to, uh, to ABG and to Shaq. You know, I've never met Shaq, but uh, mm. maybe, maybe when I'm over, I think it's about a month's time, just over a month's time. We were talking to ABG and, and hopefully I'll Definitely. be introducing you. I'll, I'll give them your, your whereabouts, your name and say, come on, come on. You know, there's some good influence out there. Definitely. They know about influencing. Yes, influencing. That's a, for marketing, that's big. Absolutely. And telling stories is very big now. Yeah, and, no, it is. Yeah. You know, these things, these things are coming along and they're changing. They're changing how we market our product. You know, and, I, and I think with, with Reebok, we have such a, a fabulous history and hopefully they pick up on the book and, you know, they uh, they see the story in the book. Well, no, no, definitely, Joe. Well, I'm going to continue to promote it again. I love the book. I love the brand. I, I love your story. I mean, I've been watching all your, your podcasts of seeing you in Dubai and jet setting and, and, and living a fabulous life. And it's definitely well deserved. So I need everybody to go out here and pick up this book. Again, it's bigger than just a, a book about the brand of Reebok. It's, it's, it's really an inspirational book. And you're getting, you know, uh, many, many, many years of wisdom from an extremely uh, intelligent and just a visionary in the space of, of business. I'm not even going to just say the shoe world, but you definitely can pick up a lot of wisdom in business and just in life from, from my good friend, Joe uh, Foster. So I need you guys to go make sure you follow him on social media. I mean, you, you would think that Joe just started this company. He, he, he's, he's been everywhere. The people are loving the book. So again, uh, Joe, I appreciate you. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule. Uh, when you do make it to the States, I'll make sure to, to, to fly out and meet you at one of your uh, uh, events. And so family, I appreciate you guys here today on the full-time CEO podcast, the shit they don't tell you, where I get to interview some very cool people. And today we had an opportunity to interview an icon, not just a legend, but the icon, Mr. Joe Foster. Again, make sure you go and pick up Shoemaker, the book that will change your life for the better. And until then, I will see you guys at the top. Take care. Peace. Peace.